Welcome to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. A Dream Mason is a person who's brave enough to declare they have a dream and committed enough to do the work to build it. I know we all have a Dream Mason inside of us, and my dream for this podcast is to support all of us by giving us a glimpse inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators, and innovators to help us unleash our inner Dream Mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves. This is a special episode of the Dream Mason podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to Mr. Resilient, as I have dubbed him, Michael Robert Eck. He's a natural risk taker, an innovative entrepreneur. He has lived a life that most people are not brave enough to pursue. He's never played it safe. He's always followed his passion and never made excuses. He's a fighter, a love warrior, and an entrepreneur. Michael was born with hemophilia, a blood disease that can turn any slight injury into a life-threatening emergency. While we always hear stories about rich and famous people that have failed and then succeeded, it's not often that we actually get to hear the story of a man who has won and then lost, only to rise up again, to lose it all again, to then try and try and try again. Michael never quits. Never. Michael Eck is a dream mason and an inspiration, not only because he has built business after business, succeeded and failed, but because he did it all while overcoming life-threatening health battles with hemophilia, hepatitis C, as well as some struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. If you've ever been afraid to try, scared to take a risk, or afraid you might fail, this is a story to hear. Michael is the definition of resilience and picking oneself up after falling down. Hope you enjoy this interview, and I'm excited to introduce you to Michael Robert Eck. Hey, Alex, how you doing? Hey, Michael, it's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for for having me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. We've known each other a little while, and, you know, I think... I've kind of for a long time have recognized you as you got this, this special gift as just somebody who's ridiculously relentless. So thanks for showing up here to share your story and and really like whatever that thing is about you that has you always keep going, never stop. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot to it, but I, you know, I, I also want to just acknowledge you and congratulate you for you know, making your dreams come true and um, getting this podcast off the ground. I'm, I'm excited to see what, what you're going to be bringing to the table and uh, listening to some of the other guests that you're going to be having. It's, it's exciting for you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I'm very excited. I've been talking to some great people. You, you're included in that, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm excited to see who shows up as it evolves along the way. What I'd love for to hear, let people hear a little bit about you from you Sure, sure. Um, you know, some of the things that I've had to challenge, you know, challenges throughout my life. The biggest thing is probably the fact that I was born with a bleeding disease called hemophilia, which is a fairly rare um, disease that where I don't have a clotting factor in my blood. So uh, you'll hear this a little bit probably throughout our interview today or our, our discussion that and that's had a lot to do with kind of that stick to or the not even stick to more about you know, just kind of, uh, you know, when the odds are against you to kind of, you know, get out of your corner and, you know, keep fighting. So that's a big thing you'll hear about me. But um, more than that, you know, I'm, I'm a father of three beautiful daughters and a grandfather of two beautiful little girls. Um, I'm a young 52 years old. Uh, and I've lived a pretty interesting life as an entrepreneur for the most part. And, you know, I've had some great success and I've had some epic, uh, I guess we could call them failures, but for me, you know, the road to success is, is definitely, um, you know, you've got a lot of roads along the way that are, I guess we, you could call failure, but I don't look at failure as a, as the end all for me, it's always going to be a learning experience. Yeah. I don't, I've never thought of anything you've shared with me in any of the stories and we'll get into like all the, the different things you started, but I've never thought of any of these things as failure. You know, I, I think of you, if we, if we really simplify it as when you're learning to ride a bike, you know, like 
there's either somebody holding the bike up, so there's no risk and no whatever, but somebody's got to let that bike go. And any kid that ever learned how to ride a bike, like they fall off, they hit a bump, they fall over, they fall down. And the only way you actually ever learn to ride a bike is to keep doing it. And mm. that's, you know, in, in the things that I've, you've shared with me and the conversations we've had, that's you in a nutshell is like mm. you, I want to say that your bike is life and entrepreneurship and inspiration in the sense of it doesn't matter how many times you fell down or fell off the bike, you're always willing to get back and get back on it. You know, one of the things that, that I just learned about you was, you know, I knew about, uh, how do you, how do you say it? Hemophilia? Yeah. Hemophilia. Yes. But when I, I would, I just learned that, you know, you had over 150 ER visits and over yeah, 30 yeah. hospital it was like, you've essentially been checked into the hospital over 30 times. Yeah, for like, well, you know, extended stays, you know, and it, the funny thing is, it's, um, I'm a mild case of hemophilia, which is interesting, because if you're a severe case, you can have just random bleeds without even being hit. But the reason that I was hospitalized so much is because I was so active. I was, you know, as a kid, I was a lot of the times I was told I couldn't do things. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't allowed to play football in high school. My parents basically had to get an attorney just to allow me to play high school baseball and play basketball. Um, so any of the contact sports, like, you know, football or soccer, I wasn't able to play, but of course I played out in the sandlots and, you know, I became, uh, you know, a martial artist at a very young age. That's a big part of my story. Um, as I, you know, ended up owning a martial arts school, um, an extreme skier doing, you know, I've ridden a live <laughs> bull before, not just, you know, the one in the bar, the live bull and, uh, and, you know, jumped out of airplanes. And you know, so I've done a lot of the things that typically hemophiliacs probably aren't really supposed to do. Um, but I, again, part of it is because I was always told I couldn't do things. It was always a, it always challenged me. And I'm not saying that that's the brightest thing to do, but I, I, I didn't want it to hold me back in life. So because of that, you know, I would get injured. I broke, I've broken nine bones. So I'm getting get injured in the healing process because of the bleeding was so slow. So that's why I would end up in the hospital so much. That's also one of the things that's amazing about you, though. You know, there'd be a lot of people that had this or have any other disease that impacts, you know, their life. And when you were young, like, yeah, there were things that you weren't able to do that people kind of put a damper on, but like you still found ways to do them. And then even your parents like supported you and like you said, getting a lawyer and actually letting you play baseball. And at what age were you a black belt? Um, so I, I received, well, I was a brown belt in judo as a kid, um, probably like by the eighth grade. So I started judo in 1970 at the age of five and I did judo throughout the 1970s and then I received my brown belt. And then, um, in high, once I got into high school, you know, without even telling my parents, you know, I joined a karate school and back, you know, this is the early eighties when, you know, there, you know, there wasn't a karate school on every street corner, you know? So it was kind of a, there weren't a lot of people doing it. I mean, I remember, I think I was one of maybe two kids in my high school that did it. So I joined and by the time I received my black belt in Kempo, uh, American Kempo was 1987. Um, and I, I re so, you, so you and Daniel LaRusso were like doing karate at the same time. Uh, the, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, we, I was doing it like, I mean, I fought. I don't, you, I, don't, I don't know if you just picked up on my karate kid reference. That's pretty much yeah, as, yeah, the room, of course. Yeah, of course. I actually, um, I'm a part-time actor. I actually auditioned for karate kid three in New York city. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, just, it was an open call. And, uh, um, the best part about that story is, uh, you know, I was like, I think I was like 20, 21 years old and, I went down to New York and, you know, had this, they had this big open call, but the worst part was I ended up losing, uh, losing some money playing a three card Monty on my way out, you know, you know, so it was, I hadn't been, had a lot of experience in the city. I came from a small town, so, you know, then well, I had to find my way home. So it's a great, that's a great story. Well, you know, that, that really is, uh, that, that story is really, um, all encompassing of who you are. Yeah, you know, bit, you, yeah. it almost occurs like, I don't know. Tell me, like, how is it that somebody, you know, that you could at any moment, essentially you could do something physically, let's just say like, obviously accidents happen, but you could like go play a sport, be, you know, in a uh, karate match or some other uh, form of, you know, skiing or whatever, and have an mm -hmm. accident that you essentially could bleed out and die from something that somebody else would be fine from. Right. Right. Uh, so like I ended up um, in the, 
uh, late nineties, I ended up buying a Harley and, uh, you know, in Connecticut, we have a no helmet law, you know, you don't have to wear a helmet and, and I didn't wear a helmet. And sometimes again, you know, I think I just, I felt like, you know, Hey, when it's my time, it's my time for the most part. Yes. A, a, a bad concussion can kill me because of the internal bleeding in my head. Um, but again, I just, I just had to make a conscious decision in life. Like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can and you know how the chips fall, you know, they fall, but um, you know, there was always great care around whenever I was, you know, I got hurt or something. Um, I did get a sparring accident back in, I think in like 19, maybe 1986 or so. I, I almost lost my leg from something called compartment syndrome, which is a pretty rare, um, rare injury where the fluids fill up into compartments in your leg or like in your, in your forearm where they should be. So, um, yeah, I mean, I almost lost my leg and I still, you know, I did that. And then, you know, six months later I was, you know, off crutches and then training again. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. I can look at it like, Hey, you know what? I've been hurt a lot, but you know, a lot, a lot of other people are, are, are worse off than me, you know? Well, what's the difference? Cause there's, there's probably people listening and there's probably people that have been around you your whole life that are like, you're just, you're just stupid. Like you're dumb. They're crazy. This is like, you're literally risking your life for things you don't need to be doing. Right. right. And, and that's not, I, I, I mean, my opinion is that's not for any of us to say, like, it's your life. You should get to live it how you want, but mm-hmm. how do you actually make that choice? Like, cause there are things you don't do, right? Like there's, there's something that you're not doing. And then there's things that you're doing. How do you make the choice between like, I'm going to live my life and this is a risk worth taking and like such and such isn't a risk worth taking. Right. I mean, I guess a little bit of that comes with age, obviously. And it came with, you know, obviously having children and now grandchildren, but because of all the injuries and stuff, I had a lot of, you know, joint bleeds and things like that. So I deal with some chronic, some chronic issues like in my left ankle and things like that. And, um, so at this point, you know, uh, when I most recently owned a karate school, you, you know, at the age of 50, I went into a karate tournament and I did that once and I realized, you know what, um, this is not for me to, you know, I shouldn't be out there fighting in a karate tournament at this age and with the injuries I've had. So a little bit, I think it's, it comes with age more than anything else for me, a little bit of more maturity. And, um, but, but when I was younger, you know, it was pretty hard to find anything that I wasn't willing to take the risk to do. Um, you know, I was in, at, the, at the age of 17, I went into a, a demolition, uh, demolition car derby, <laughs> you know, so uh, <laughs> uh, well, I was drive my mother crazy, man. I, you know, it was, yeah, I, 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 I was a risk taker. I, I really wanted to, I wanted to live life. I wanted to experience things and. Um, yeah, there wasn't much that was going to stop me from doing that, but yeah, I've definitely smartened up in the sense that, you know, it hurts, you know, I wake up now and I'm like, oh man, my, my, my joints are creaking, you know? So, um, I'm getting a little tighter. I mean, I would say probably everyone would probably agree that with age we get, you know, a little safer, right? Like little kids are reckless because they don't really comprehend consequences. Like, you know, if you, if you do something crazy when you're skiing as an adult and you get hurt, it impacts all areas of your life. It could impact right. to make money as a kid, you know, so you miss mm-hmm. school or whatever. You're not actually thinking something serious can happen. But if you were, so, you know, you have three daughters, let's just say um, any of them had, you know, suffered from what the, the condition that you had and they right. were living their young life like you were, would you be okay mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, I would be. Um, I would definitely try to, you know, consult with them, you know, communicate with them, talk with them. I always, you know, with my, with my daughters, I always looked at it like, Hey, um, this is their life. You know, I'm here to, uh, parent them and to provide them with, um, you know, the best tools to get, get, get through life, you know, and, and it wasn't always perfect. I was actually divorced at a very young age. Uh, I always say that I'm happily divorced and, uh, that's the truth because I get along great with my ex-wife who we've been apart for 25 years. And, um, so when the kids were younger, you know, I was, they were definitely, we had a lot of adventures, put it that way. And, um, the kids would, you know, would come to like my softball games, things like that. I mean, I mean, they would end up going to the hospital with me after. So they, they saw the things that I went through. So I think they learned a little bit just by experiencing, you know, that kind of thing. But, on the same token, like my, my oldest daughter ended up going to Europe to be an au pair for a year. 
And I remember people would, you know, say, you know, well, gosh, aren't you worried about her? And, you know, you must be going crazy. And I, I remember thinking and saying, no, you know, this is, this is her journey. I'm here. She's there. What can I do from here? All, you know, the work that I've done hopefully is going to, you know, give her the confidence and the self-esteem to be there and to make, you know, good decisions and stuff. So, um, so yeah, I would say that, you know, when I don't really would, I wouldn't want to give advice to too many people, including my own children. It's more about, um, you know, sharing experiences. Hey, you know what, if you want to, you know, end up in the hospital, you know, if you've got hemophilia, then, you know, you can kind of do what I did. Or if you want to play it a little safer, you know, you do that too. So it's more in anything like, just like in coaching, you know, you, you don't want to tell people what to do. It's more about, you know, sharing experiences with them. Yeah. I'm looking, I mean, I look at you from the standpoint of like, it's more about inspiration. It's not like I need to copy you and do the things you've done, but there's mm-hmm. things I want to do that I'm stopped, you know, by some fear of something. And anybody listening to this has something that they want to do, that there's a fear involved and your fear actually is, you know, there's a, I just talked to uh, I just did a, uh, an interview with a, a guy named Peter Scott, who has a academy called the fearless life Academy. And we talked about the, Love that the difference between irrational fears and rational fears Mm. and and like most human beings, we're actually not living the lives we want to be living because of irrational fears and irrational fears being the ones that won't kill us. But you Mm. lived your almost entire life with with the fears that for me might've been irrational for you are actually rational because they could have killed you. Right. Yeah. Understood. And, and that's, and, 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 you know, to listeners out there too, um, you know, my, I, I do have people around me that are like, you know, Michael, you're crazy. You know, when are you going to, you know, for, for a long time, it was like, when are you going to grow up? And, you know, and I guess that's a big part of my <laughs> Yeah, when, when are you, when are you going to grow up? When, now that you're what, 52? At what point? What age? Exactly. You know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I mean, even at this age, I, you know, um, you know, when I was teaching karate most recently when I had the karate school, you know, I'm, you know, I'm doing, uh, doing all these trick kicks with the kids and, you know, somersault kicks and, um, or, you know, handstands, you know, jumping into kicks and doing all these crazy things. And, uh, but a big part of my life, I just want to say it has been, I don't know if I would say a chip on my shoulder, but I guess something to prove, um, to myself. But if I looked at it really honestly, also, I was probably like, you know, the heck with you world, you know, you're not going to tell me that I can't do something, you know, um, I, there was, like I said, legally, there were things I couldn't do, but, um, and I think I just used that as fuel, you know, and, uh, and probably to the extreme. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the healthiest thing. I, I think there's a better, I could have balanced it a little bit more so that I wasn't in and out of hospital so much. Um, but you know, well, I was young and, you know, like I say, it was a learning experience. Yeah. And I, I love one of the things as you're t- sharing, I'm thinking about, you know, I know all the different businesses that you started and the variety. I think that's like the coolest thing, right? Like you've done, first of all, you've the amount of things you've done and accomplished, you should be like 75 or 80. It's also just like, it spans like just all these different industries. And I, I think as I'm listening to you, the fearlessness or the ability to take risks because of your health situation, it seems like that plays right into your entrepreneurial life. No, I would agree with that. And I, um, and that, yeah, and that's a big thing. Again, you know, people on the sidelines sometimes, you know, there's a lot of judgment out there in the world. And, uh, and I get that. I, and I, and I'm, I'm a human being, you know, I, I, I definitely have taken it to heart at times when, you know, uh, you know, here we are having this conversation, you and I, but, you know, you know, some of those businesses did not do all that well. And, you know, a lot of people can say like, why, you know, you know, why, why is the Alex interviewing that guy? You know, he had a failed business. Well, um, you know, it's just the fact that I have taken risks. I always, one of my stories is, you know, obviously, you know, the fruits out at the end of the limb, right. You know, the, the whole kind of parable of, you know, climbing the tree, going out there, grab, you know, going out, on the, on the limb to grab the fruit because it's where the fruit is. And I, I would tell a story about, well, then the, the, the branch breaks, you fall down. Well, what do you do? Well, dust yourself back off and, you know, go and climb again, you know, and then you're climbing so many, so, so many times. And then, you know, you find yourself falling in the same place and it creates a hole. And now you're in a hole that you can't even get out, you know, and instead of like, you know, people are there with a handout, like, well, let me help you. And 
you know, you can stop this. And, you know, for me, it's like, well, no, like help me up, but then I'm going to climb again. You know, it's like, it's that kind of thing. So there's, there's risk and reward. And sometimes the risk is not really worth, worth it. Um, so I've had to, I would say, uh, make some adjustments in that sense of, um, you know, physically I was always risking things because of, you know, it could definitely take my life. Um, business wise, I just felt like, you know, at an early age, I was very successful. So it always, it almost seems to come easy to me. So I would just, you know, keep risking. And then when I remember at a time when things started to go south a little bit for me, the first time it was, it was pretty shy, not shocking, but it was, it was really difficult. And I could have stopped at that time and been like, all right, I better take the safer approach. But, um, you know, throughout the years, I have continued to have that entrepreneurial spirit. And, and most recently, you know, it, it did cost me. And I'm kind of in that rebuilding stage again, Alex. What was your first entrepreneurial venture? Okay. My first kind of like real entrepreneurial venture was um, probably eighth, ninth grade. You know, if you really look at it as a kid, like eighth, ninth grade, I um, printed up business cards. My dad was in the printing business. So I printed a business card that said baseball library and it had my phone number on it and kids could call me and ask me questions about baseball. And uh, you know, I would charge them like 25 cents, you know, the next day to help me with my lunch money. Um, so I was obsessed with baseball and, and all the statistics and things like that. So that was like a little entrepreneurial thing. And then, you know, I mowed much, on. Did you did you actually make money in this? Uh, I love you. Oh, you, were, you were you were basically like a one eight hundred number. Yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, this is before the internet and all of those things. So you know, I had like the baseball encyclopedia, um, which was uh, you know this big thick book that helped all had stats on it. So I could look up anything, but I also knew a lot of things. You know, people could ask me like, you know, who uh, you know who hit, who hit the home run in the in the one game playoff? You know, with the Yankees and Red Sox, and of course it's Bucky Dent or you know, who, uh, who hit the shot, heard around the world with the, I think it was the Giants, um, the Giants and the Dodgers. And it was Bobby Thompson for the Giants uh, back in the 50s or maybe 1960s. So little things like that, I would, and I was obsessed with it. So I, it was something that I enjoyed. So I, I always try to, you know, the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial stuff, do things that you enjoy. But then I, you know, mowed lawns. I had a job by the time I was a freshman in high school working at the local hardware store, even though I was, I was playing sports. And then um, when I graduated high school, you know, all my friends, I was, you know, I was a popular kid in high school and we were from a small, small school and all my friends went to college. I was expected to go to college, but I didn't. Um, I ended up going to a local, actually a local community college that after like a month, I ended up dropping out. Um, and then I hitchhiked to California. So when I got to California, I bought a pickup truck and a lawnmower and I started mowing lawns out there. And, uh, <laughs> I was yeah. actually, yeah, and I was actually working at the Camp Pendleton Marine base as well, mowing lawns there for my, you know, for a full-time job. But while I was out in California, you know, we were from a tight family, just one brother and my, my, my dad and my mom and my mom missed me tremendously, you know, I'm from New England. And uh, that first fall, she sent me out a bag of uh, leaves, you know, from the New England trees, you know, so I would miss home. <laughs> and uh, nice. my father ended up calling me and say, hey, you know, how about we start a printing business? Come home, we'll start a printing business. So at the age of 19, I went back to Connecticut. And uh, so the first real business, I guess, was a commercial printing company, just my dad and myself, just the two of us. And he would work at his regular printing job during the day. He would come in at like three o'clock in the afternoon and he and I would work like till 10 o'clock at night, you know, um, you know, doing the work. So during the day when he was at his job, I was there trying to, you know, I was hustling around town, you know, picking up business card jobs or letterheads or little brochures and things like that. So this was 1985. So from so there you, on, so you were, you were, you were running it while he was, and you were doing like essentially the sales, you were the one generating the business. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So my brother was in college. He was a year older than me. And a uh, great story, you know, it was just the two of us. That first year in 1985, we did 80, like we did like $80,000 in sales, you know, small little company. Um, by, we started in March of 85. By the time September came around, we realized we needed somebody part-time to like answer phones and help me do the books. At the time I was doing all the accounting 
and everything like, uh, you know, freehand in journals and stuff before we were using computers. And uh, so the first employee was the, the woman I would, the, the girl I would marry, uh, Diane. I she was from the local high school, um, hired her and she was our first employee. And, you know, I, I was working eight hours a week, 90 hours a week. So she was kind of my, uh, I would see her every day. So we ended up together anyway. Um, that company in, from 1985 to 2000, we had, we had sales every, every single year. Now we started the company with like, my dad borrowed like 10 grand. Um, but uh, by the time I was president of the company in the late 1990s, I think I, I was president of the company in like 98 or 97, 98, 99. And my dad was taking half a year off to uh, be in Florida. We were doing about, we were up to like $7 million a year in sales. So we grew from nothing really. And, you know, my dad was able to quit his job after like a, two years. Uh, my brother came into the business. The, the story I was telling you about my leg, almost losing my leg, uh, that would drive my father crazy because we're, we're running this business and I would still do karate at night and teach karate at night. And anyway, I, I ended up getting hurt. My brother had to quit college to come take kind of like come work because I wasn't there. And so he ended up not going back to college and ended up staying with the business. Well, this is, a, that's actually a great thing to, to bring in because your recklessness or risk-taking, I don't know how we want to say it, is like could impact other people, right? Your brother, you said, had to leave college because of mm-hmm. an injury that you sustained that you didn't need to be doing. Right. And that, that is true. And, you know, I definitely have to acknowledge that, that it definitely um, affected my kids. It affected, you know, my mother, you know, God bless her. She, she passed away about eight years ago, but she was very, she worked at the local hospital. I mean, I would, you know, I would get hurt at night and end up at the emergency room and the next day she'd come into the emergency room and I'd be there, you know? Um, but yeah, it affected my family for sure. And, and, and definitely business more than once. Um, you know, so those are some things that like, you can't have regrets, but you know, you can say, well, if I, if I had to do it differently, I would, I would definitely have toned it down in certain areas without compromising, you know, kind of going all out in some areas, but, um, you know, making some adjustments, but, um, but yeah, it definitely affected things. My brother was never really going back and finishing college, you know, um, uh, but he's, you know, certainly had a successful, successful. Let's, I want to, what actually, so what happened? You guys built this printing company. You got up to six, $7 million. You guys yeah. built something really powerful and big. And then what happened? Well, um, my on my own i ended up starting a mailing fulfillment operation out of my home in like 1989 so four years into the printing business i started a side company probably partly because i always felt like i needed to i wasn't getting like the validation that of, from my father who was basically my partner even though he had all these years of experience i was really still we started it together we grew it, the printing business together so yeah, i started that company and then um uh, within like two years, my brother and I, my brought my brother into it. He was my partner for the mailing business. We ended up buying a building. Um, we ended up with like over a hundred employees with like, after like two, three years, we were very young, 20, you know, 26, 27 years old. And, um, I ended up, my father really needed me at the printing business more. So after about five, six years of being vice president of the printing company and the president of the mailing company, I ended up selling the mailing company to my brother. And then so I could just focus with my dad. Um, during that time too, my brother and I also had a drive-through video store. We had a baseball card comic book memorabilia store. We had a greeting card company. Uh, we had all these other little things. I was trying to build like this. I was so young and, you know, just, uh, you know, just so much ambition and not necessarily for the right reasons. I can look back at it now. You know, I've learned so much from it, but anyway, what happened was, to be honest with you, I was diagnosed. Wait, hold on, hold on. What you were, you were just about to share with us is something that's probably really cool. Um, and I don't want to step over that. You, you were just <laughs> saying you had so much ambition and for probably not the right reasons. Yeah. I, and I, and um, I want to touch on this because I think that, you know, you and I both know that this is something that happens for people, right? People say like, I want to be successful. I want to buy this house. I want to open this business. And you ask them why, and they're like, well, money or freedom or whatever. And so often it's not about that. It's about like proving to somebody that they were good enough or capable or, you know, showing their parents or, or whoever something. And it's not actually about them. It's this like completely other thing that they're not aware of. 
Sure. So for me, I, I would say probably at the time, you know, some of my insecurities were the fact that, you know, I didn't go to college. Um, you know, I remember at one point, you know, one of my best friends uh, was voted most likely to succeed in high school. You know, you know, I was voted uh, most pleasant and warmest smile. You know, I wasn't voted best looking or, you know, but most likely to succeed or best athlete. Um, so <laughs> most, <laughs> my buddy, most pleasant. <laughs> yeah, most, uh, most pleasant and warmest smile. You know, I was just a nice kid, you know. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> um, so my, one of my best buddies, most likely to succeed, was living in Chicago at the time. And um, I ended up bringing him, he was working for travelers, great job, and was just about ready to get married and everything. He ends up moving back to Connecticut to work for me. I hired him to be my chief financial officer at my mailing company. And, you know, at the time it was called X Enterprises because I had the mailing company, the video store. And at that point I was starting to do some inspirational speaking and writing, um, writing on like subjects of like stress management, time management, which, you know, Alex, you know me, that, that's a pretty comical one in the time management. Well, you, uh, and you even wrote, I mean, you, you got published. You, yeah, yeah, what's yeah, the book? Was, was a, a, local, a, local, a local business magazine I was writing, like, monthly articles. Um, but anyway. No, but didn't you, get, didn't you get, you got published in a book. What was you, I remember, even you sent me a book that I. Yeah, that book um, was later on in, like, I think 2011. It was um, Today is Your Day. Um, 51 of top coaches um, share their stories or, or something like that. And um, so it was like a bunch of coaches are in that book. And I'm, I happen to be, they made me chapter one. Um, and it's called uh, Journey of the Superhero, which, you know, I know we'll get into the whole superhero philosophy that I have in a little bit. But going back to your thing about, you know, yeah, I, I felt I had something to prove. Like, so I ended up hiring my buddy, you know, just more, I think, just, to pat myself in the back that, yeah, okay, he was most likely to succeed, but now he's working for me. So those were, that's what I'm talking about, the wrong reasons. Um, and definitely money and things like that. Um, so I had, I had, I was making really good money, but then when you lose everything, which I did, um, you know, it really gives you some perspective on like what's really important. And, you know, what am I doing this for? And, you know, but, it, but one of the things that really affected me was in the late nineties, I was diagnosed with hepatitis C and hepatitis C at the time was very new. It, it, it was, it's a liver disease. And the reason that a lot of people were getting liver transplants or, you know, dying of liver cancer and things like that. And, um, hepatitis C was a blood virus. It's a blood to blood virus. So while I escaped, um, contracting HIV from, you know, as the hemophiliac, most of the hemophiliacs were HIV positive that, were from the same time frame that I was. So I was fortunate to- Is, it, is that just- Walking apart. But that, is that just because during that time, like people didn't under, you know, HIV was like yeah, in the eighties, it was like, you know, new, it wasn't new, but it was new as a, as something that was kind of like on the forefront of everybody's mind. And it was obviously taking a lot of people's lives. And because right. of the hemophilia, you had to get like, what? Like blood transfusions. Is that the reason why those things- Correct, correct. So at one point, 90% of hemophiliacs during a certain period of time, um, 90% were HIV positive. I was in the 10%. Um, you know, you've heard, maybe you remember like the Ryan, I know you're a young guy, Alex, but uh, like the Ryan White story, um, kind of a famous story, a uh, young boy who's hemophiliac. A lot of the hemophiliacs were, you know, kids um, and they weren't allowed in schools. I mean, there's a story about hemophiliacs in, Lord, that where their house was burnt down, three brothers. And, um, you know, it was pretty awful. And uh, so I did not get that. Um, but I did, like I said, get hepatitis C, which is another blood to blood virus. And hepatitis C is more like a 20 to 30 year disease where it, it's, it's like it's called the silent killer. So it's sitting in your, in your bloodstream for a long time. Um, but it doesn't really start to really affect you until 20, 30 years. So for me, my first transfusion was 1967. So I could have gotten it, you know, at that point or through the, you know, dozens and dozens of transfusions I received in the late 60s and 70s. So anyway, I, I got hepatitis C in the late 90s and I, my attitude changed a little bit and not necessarily for the best. I kind of had the, uh, you know, effort attitude, like, you know, what's going to happen now? Am I going to die? And I, I really thought like maybe I was going to die. I was um, not 
feeling as well. There were a lot of things that this stuff was starting to starting to affect. And long story short, I ended up just kind of ignoring it. But my some of my some of my I guess my ambition or the what I thought was important had changed. I was I wanted to get out of the family business, and I did. I got out of the family business around 2000 2001. Um, uh, couple of years later, my father and my brother weren't able to hold on to the business. They ended up selling it to a big company that basically ate them up and spit them out. So it's another learning experience. But um, anyway, I, I didn't deal with the sickness until probably 2006, I think, um, because I was faced with another challenge. I ended up, you know, my, my priorities, I think my, what was important to me changed. And I, I didn't really care as much about certain things. I ended up opening a bar in the, like 2003. 2004. And, uh, <laughs> so at this point, at this point, you've been in the printing business, the mailing business, or like right. you, you've been in. You had a video store, mm-hmm. you had a baseball card and comic book store, and now you decided food and beverage would be the way to go. Yeah. So and, every, and everything I wanted, everything I did, I tried to be very innovative. Like the video store in 1992, um, we were a drive-through video store. Um, we also had the, like one of the first in the in the country one of the first video vending machines. So it was this big, big huge machine that held like 300 videos. Some people might remember where the arm goes up and it grabs the VHS and it brings it back and dumps it into a- Some people, some people listening to this might not even know what a VHS is. <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, so, so with my bar, I opened a bar called Mad Dog's Rock and Roll Saloon. And I opened it with my then fiance and, uh, we were, it was a small bar in Hartford, but right away we became a very popular, we were voted in the Hartford Advocate, which is like the, the entertainment magazine up in Connecticut. We were voted best new bar and best overall bar the first we were in business. And, you know, I, I innovative in a sense, like I sold bar stools, you know, for $500, you could have your name engraved on the stool. Whenever you came in, whoever was sitting there had to get up and you got to sit there. Um, I only sold uh, American products meaning North and South American products. Uh, so it was a real saloon kind of style. Uh, we had the Mad Dogaritas, which were big margaritas sold in a dog bowl. Um, now, what happened was... The <laughs> bar was wait, wait, they were actually served in a dog bowl? Yeah, and you get to take the dog bowl home, and it has our logo on it. Yeah. yeah. So did, what, what, dog bowls are like low and flat, like what people just like... Pay- no, these were big dog bowls from Ikea. <laughs> Okay. All right. So it was like two, it was a two person margarita. Now I'm telling you all of this because this was real. Uh, this was a catalyst in a sense of I had, I made a real shift because um, the success of the bar, everything that goes with the bar, um, I really ended up getting into, you know, anything, you know, you can think of it like a movie. I mean, all the bad stuff that goes with the bar, that's what I did. You know, I, I'm today, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And uh, that bar business really helped me circle the drain pretty quickly. Um, financially, my relationship, my relationship suffered. My finances suffered. My mentally, emotional, and spiritual state really took a hit. And, um, you know, it was all my own doing. You know, one thing I, I, I like to do, say sometimes, you know, when I talk to somebody like yourself is, you know, I take responsibility for what's happened in my life. You know, it's, I maybe have was born with hemophilia, things like that, there's certain circumstances. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I did that, uh, you know, unfortunately caused me, caused me and some of the people around me a lot of pain. Anyway, so I ended up getting out of the bar business and getting clean and sober. And at that point is when I really faced my, my medical issue with the hepatitis C. So I ended up doing, going on a medication for one year, um, something called interferon furon and ribavirin so for one year i basically um injected the 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 medicine it was i look back at it like i you know i wish i did more something like holistic but at the time you know i was in the in the kind of the category of a certain like stage liver liver disease where if i didn't take care of it i I probably wouldn't be here now so i did that for a year and now that virus is undetectable but it took a real i took a real beating that year that that medicine, um, I remember in the study out of 12 people, only three of us made it through. Everybody else quit because, you know, you know, all of the, how it causes all of these uh, side effects, you know, if it was 
some of the side effects were homicidal and suicidal thoughts. So it was not a very good medicine to be on. Um, well, it's just another, it, it's just, it's just another occurrence of, you know, we didn't actually, I, you know, we didn't start this conversation by looking at like what your dreams are and like what you're trying to actually build, but you know, it's, it, there's something at least knowing you and talking to you, like, I believe that there, you got a purpose and you have a big purpose because, you know, there's, you've just given us like all the reasons why you shouldn't be here. Right, right, right. Like we can find more reasons why you, your life should have ended than, than the ways that you've kept yourself going. I mean, you just, it's almost like you have, there's this, there's this innate thing inside of you that I would love to like hear you like just kind of take a look at for a minute, which is, it was like keep knocking you down and i'm i'm with you on the sense of like you aside from the hemophilia which is like you you know you we could just say you were like hey that was something that you were just given and you were but your life and the drugs and the alcohol um the accidents the businesses the ups and downs like you created all these things Mm -hmm. you're taking responsibility for them but most people, I mean, this is the thing I love about you. Like most people would have just quit or stopped or given up or been like, you know what, I'll just go get a job or I'll just sit in a chair all day or like I'll play it safe or, and at no point did you, did that occur? I mean, now, even to this day, we haven't even gone through the next phase of your life, but like you just are unwilling to stop. Right. It has been more, you know, I've, since I closed my karate school in uh, July, June or July, I bought a karate school and financially just didn't work out after like three years. And I had, I had to close it. Um, but that was heartbreaking for me because I was teaching kids every day. When I closed it, it's been a, these past, you know, six months or so has been, have been probably six of the most challenging months of my life. And I've had some challenging months. Now I closed that school and at the time, um, uh, you know, I, I had to, I basically closed the doors and, you know, these, some of these kids were, you know, coming to me, they relied on me and it, it, it still hurts. And I, and also, you know, my reputation took a hit people, you know, I, I let some people down and, you know, some people, you know, can look at it and, you know, aren't really looking at it necessarily clearly. You know, I, I communicated with everybody and, you know, it was a difficult decision, but, um, because of the way I felt after it has been this time getting back up on my feet, Alex, you know, if you want to look at it like a fighter, man, it was like at 52 years old, I was in like the 10th round. I was knocked on my rear end again. And I was, it's been, it was, <laughs> I've gone right to the, to the, to the, you know, whatever count, 10 count to get back up, you know? And, um, and it's been the most challenging time in my life to, you know, yeah, I really, I was, I've been questioning, I was questioning myself a lot, you know, and just until recently, um, you know, I wasn't really sure what my purpose was anymore. You know, all of my dreams that I've had for, you know, so long and, you know, I've always gone after those dreams. I just wasn't sure, but, you know, through, uh, I have a great relationship with an amazing, you know, woman, you know, Liz that, you know, Liz, with, with help of her and support and support of some other close people, because a lot of people, they start to lose belief in you, Alex, you know, they're like, you know, God, Michael's, you know, trying something else again, you know, is he going to, is he going to make it or is he going to fail? And some people are rooting for you to fail, you know? Um, so this time I've really, some of the people that have rooted for me to fail, you know, I, I guess it's like the Tom Brady thing, you know, who's, you know, picked in like the last round of the draft and he uses that still to this day to, uh, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily healthy, but he uses it to, you know, inspire himself. So for me, you know, I mean, I need to prove it to myself that I can still, I still have some uh, gas in the tank, you know, Alex, I guess. Well, when is, what will have it be enough? Mm. Um, it's interesting because it's not like I'm chasing, I'm not chasing happiness. I'm not chasing, I'm not chasing something. I feel like life is to be, you know, experienced. So a lot of these experiences, you know, they've all added something, some value to my life. Um, but this time... Um, you know, I, I just question myself of like, you know, if I just go get myself a cubicle job, you know, even at this age and, and kind of give up on all those dreams and, you know, and I've been close to doing that, but, um, 
I don't know. I feel like I feel like sometimes it takes people a longer time to really find what their purpose is. You know, yeah, I, I just feel that all of us, each of us, and you've heard me talk about this kind of the superhero philosophy. I call it the superhero revolution, where every single person has a power within them that um, when they're tapped into it, when they're connected to their source, to their power, um, is able to lead a heroic life. And a heroic life can look, uh, you know, in many ways, it can be just, you know, reading, you know, reading a book to uh, people at the uh, retirement community. It could be reading a book to a school of uh, schoolroom of children. You know, that might be a heroic thing for, for one person, or it might be, you know, starting a nonprofit. Like everybody has that hero within them. So my whole philosophy is helping people tap into that power. It's helping them, you know, I believe that we're always increasing or decreasing everything that we do, we're either increasing or decreasing our power, whether, and I have the four pillars of power, which are spiritually, um, emotionally, mentally, and um, physically. So if I'm eating, you know, Burger King and McDonald's, I'm decreasing my physical power, right? Or if I'm, you know, uh, watching reality TV, I'm, you know, decreasing probably all four pillars of power, you know? Um, but then there's things where, hey, if I'm, you know, listening to, a, uh, you know, uh, you know, a Dream Mason podcast, you know, I'm increasing my, my emotional and mental and spiritual power. Uh, so that's really, it's about, uh, you know, and when we're, we're, we're when we're, decreasing our power. It's just that we're not connected to our source. Like if I'm not doing meditating, which, you know, I've really struggled with a little bit this past six months. If I'm not doing those things, I'm disconnected to my source and I'm decreasing my power. So my whole thing is, you know, Hey, what are you doing today to increase your power? Or what are you doing today to, you know, to better yourself spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Um, so we all have those powers within us. And it's just a matter of, you know, getting connected and having somebody, you know, community and a partner and a coach and things like that to help us um, stay on track with those powers. Nice. I love that. What is, uh, what's your superpower? Um, love, love is my superpower, you know, love, uh, love, love is my life purpose to, uh, to spread it. Um, you know, something I like to call the love illusion, uh, you know, creating a, a um, a revolution on love. Um, uh, you know, again, I was, you know, even as a kid, you know, I was always smiling and stuff. So I, I one of the, one of the monikers for me is, uh, being a happiness activist, you know, spreading happiness wherever I, wherever I go. And even if I'm having a rough day, you know, being able to put a smile on somebody else's face, um, that only helps me, you know, it's a kind of selfish thing, I guess, in a way, being able to, um, help other people because in reality, you know, you're helping yourself. Uh, and, and, and I always say too, you know, people like, you know, um, you don't need to sacrifice yourself for your children, if you're, for, your, for your life partner, or, you know, your spouse, or girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's more important to really take care of yourself because until you take care of yourself, you're not going to be as, as a good of a partner anyway, or a good of parent. You know, I see parents all the time, you know, they're, they're sacrificing everything for the children and look what happens to the relationship. Um, look what happens to their own personal health. You know, if they're not taking time themselves to think, go to the gym or, you know, get a trainer or, or get a coach or whatever, if their life is suffering, well, guess what? You know, the kids' lives are going to suffer as well. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I always describe, you know, your life as a building and mm -hmm. you as the person or the foundation and the ground floor. And your partner yeah. is the beams that run up the middle that help support that building. And your kids and your job and your family and whatever you're building in your life become suites and, and upper levels of that building. But if you as the foundation aren't taken care of and maintained and strong and, and really well-constructed and built, the whole building will fall down. It doesn't matter how beautiful that penthouse you built for your family is. If you're not taken care of, that building is going to crumble. I, yeah, you, that's great. That's great. You said something just now that I think we forget about and I, you know, you, you were saying how like we need to take care of ourselves and how the relationships fall apart or, or whatnot. One of the things I've been noticing a lot lately is 
that we forget about is that our kids are learning from us too. So like, look, I don't have any kids. I don't, I don't pretend to be like an expert on having kids or being a parent, Mm -hmm. but what I do know through my work and my clients and just what I've experienced in my life by having parents and being a kid is we learn from our parents. So you're a parent and you're listening to this and you don't take care of yourself. That, that uh, is sinking into your kid's subconscious that like it's okay to not take care of yourself. And you are unintentionally, while you think you're creating a child that you're dedicating yourself to and sacrificing for, you're actually creating a kid who thinks it's okay to not take care of themselves. Yeah, completely, completely. And that's a great point. If you don't mind me talking a little bit about, um, about that, you know, being a divorced dad at a young age and, you know, I was very involved in my kids' lives and I, no matter what was happening in my life, if things weren't going all that great, I could always point to the fact that, hey, I'm a great parent. But, you know, and I want to just say this to be, you know, completely transparent and uh, have some vulnerability here is that my, at some point, uh, I also realized that there were things that I had done that my kids saw um, or experienced that, you know, made it so that, you know, hey, you know, I wasn't as good a parent maybe as I thought I was. I mean, I, 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 my point is that, you know, what you're talking about is like your, your kids experience it, even though they may, you may not be, they may not be even telling you that they see something or feel something or whatever, but they're there. And uh, that's one of the struggles that I've had over the past few years is, um, well, you know, for the most part, my relationship with my children is um, pretty amazing. There have been challenges and struggles and we've had to really work on that the relationship where, you know, I thought I was doing all these great things, but my, my kids kind of saw at times, different times they saw it differently. Um, uh, and, you know, and that was just like any relationship, you know, things in, unless you communicate, you know, sometimes things are just going to be silent and then you can never fix them. But, uh, but yeah, I love that with about kids is like your kids are, they're always going to be watching, you know, they're always going to be picking up on, on, on things that you're doing or, or, you know, um, your actions and things like that. So, you know, that's always kind of interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What's, um, I'm gonna ask you three questions at once and we'll go smallest to biggest. Um, what's a dream you have for your family? What's a dream you have for yourself and what's a dream you have for the world? Um, dream I have for my family would be, um, you know, I have two grandchildren now, you know, probably many more on the way. The dream I have for my family, and, and you know, I have a great relationship, I told you, with my ex-wife and, and her boyfriend of 20 years, and uh, um, I have a brother with three, three daughters and a couple of grandkids. So dream for my family is, is connectedness, um, to be able to, you know, say, share a, a house in the summer for like a month where people can kind of come and go. Everybody's older now. Everybody's, you know, living their lives. Have like, you know, we get a place out of Black Island now. Um, Elizabeth and I and her, she has two children who are basically like my stepkids. Um, so it's even more family. So that connectedness of family to be able to um, encourage, you know, encourage everybody to be who they are um, while we have this common thing of being able to come together, you know, through holidays and stuff like that. But like I say, say for a month that we have a home where everybody can kind of come and go. And, you know, and, and when we get together now as families, as family, you know, it's more conversation. It's, uh, you know, playing board games. Uh, you know, it's more interactive kind of things or being active outside or, or things like that. Not just hanging out, you know, people are playing video games or on the phones and stuff, even though we're all guilty of that at times. That dream is just all being together, you know? Okay, nice. Yeah. Uh, for, for myself, my dream, dream for myself is really to um, to really share with the world, you know, what um, my life experiences and and my love for people. Um, some of the projects that I have, you know, that I'm trying to get going. One is um, super centenarians. Basically, I want to interview people that are over 100 years of age and. You know, not that they have all the secret that they have all the knowledge and secrets, but they've had some experience. So just to, you know, have them share, you know, what 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 did they love in life? What what's the most important thing that they overcame in life? Uh, 
what are the, some of the challenges like to be able to share that so that's one of my one of my um my dreams but then also to build a um, coaching practice and uh, do retreats with my with my life partner liz we've been talking about you know um doing eventually like relationship um relationship retreats workshops things like that so personally just to be able to share with the world what my you know my gifts my my power um so that's really that what that is and then for the world is to a dream is just to is for the world is for people to see other people you know with loving eyes and with a loving heart and that we're we might be different but we're all connected one way or another i know you believe this as well alex that you know every single every single thing in life is connected in some way and to see things you know, peacefully, I know, you know, oh yeah, I dream of world peace. Well, guess what? Yeah, I, that's what I dream about. You know, I don't, uh, I would probably consider myself a pacifist. I just believe that we are all interconnected in one way or another. And for more light leaders, light workers like ourselves to be out there, and like, you know, my girlfriend Liz and a lot of people we know, Alex, we all have a mission, man. And that's it too. You know, just talking to you about it inspires me. Like I got to get moving because we have work to do, man. And and that's to be out in the world and to be able to share our light with the world. And, uh, you know, how do we affect the world, man, is by affecting one person at a time. You know, we might not be able to make this big, huge splash, but if I can be nicer to the person, you know, my neighbor or you know, the person in the store, the person at the DMV or what have you, you know, that's the way to change the world is one person at a time. Uh, starting with ourselves. So if somebody's listening to this and doesn't think, well, like, I can't impact the world, like, I can't create peace peace or love or whatever, it actually starts with creating it within yourself, creating that, mm -hmm. those feelings of peace and love in yourself. It's your power. Sure. It's your power. Absolutely. That's where it all comes from. Yeah, that's cool. I, uh, thanks. Um, yeah. I want to, uh, well, is there, I know, I don't know. I actually don't know if people want to track you down, hunt you down, mm -hmm. you owe them money or they want to tell you they love you, whatever. How would they go about getting in touch with you or following you? I don't know if you have a social, I don't know if you use social media. What's, what's the best way? So I took a little bit of a break from all social media and things like that, but um, I am actually on Facebook now. Um, but I would say the best way would be to email me um, or, you know, you could, I could even give out my phone number as well. Um, you know, and I'd love to hear from people. You know, I have. Um, what's your email? It's Michael, Michael Robert X. So it's, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-R-O-B-E-R-T-E-C-K at gmail.com. Thanks for the willingness to share so much of the, I want to say like the heartbreak and struggle. I know that's not where like it ended up. Like that's not where we are in your life now, but you know, the, the hemophilia, the hep C, the addiction to drugs and alcohol, which we, we didn't even dive into that much. The, the difficulties of, of being a parent, you know, um, the, the divorce at a young age, businesses, ups and downs, um, <laughs> the over 150 ER visits and hospital visits, you know, thanks for the vulnerability for there's people out there that obviously have um, setbacks and circumstances way less than yours and way more than yours. But I think there's value that everyone can take. Like, you know, if, if somebody like you is really willing to live life and not let the fears or the circumstances stop them, everybody can. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, Alex. And, uh, you know, just want to acknowledge you for, you know, for having me. And, you know, when you asked me to, to, you know, be a part of your podcast, I, um, yeah, I was really stoked. Thank you so much. And I'm also proud of you for everything that you're doing out in the world. And like I said, you're one of the light workers that's um, going to have a real impact. Thanks, man. You're definitely, I mean, I think you as much as whether you're at the peak of your game or at the bottom of your game, I mean, you're, you're a dream Mason, you have dreams, you build them. And part of that is right. Like we build things and they fall apart. And sometimes we build them bigger and badder than we've ever built them. And sometimes when we build them, they just don't last or sustain and it's all part of the journey. So thanks for sharing so many sides, so many sides of it. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate your time today. You bet. Thank you. 
Thank you for checking out the Dream Mason podcast. Whether you're a longtime listener or just taking a peek, I am grateful to have you here. Please tag a friend who needs to hear this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and give us a review if you like what you heard. If you want more, you can follow me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex at thedreammason.com or email me at alex at thedreammason.com. Remember, you are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.